0: All works of fiction displayed during this episode that resemble real life situations are coincidental and are not meant to serve as guides or tutorials to commit any crimes in any country. Please consult an attorney for local laws and regulations. And as always, trust your inner criminal.
1: hey <laughs> welcome everybody to the crowd <clears throat> hi <laughs> um i just got back in the nick of time i just got a headset and i'm stoked about it
2: sounds nice yeah sounds
3: cool thanks
1: yeah hopefully it's not uh noxious or giving any weird feedback but yeah should be cool um what did you get? huh what did you get Oh, I got a like a Logitech one. It's just like a, a pretty cheap one, but I just wanted something that would be like not too overkill. Because I feel like a lot of them are like really like over the top. They're, like, they like have like LEDs and like all this crazy stuff. I I just need something to talk into, and so I you know I don't really want. Uh...
2: And you could end up stepping on it too.
1: Yeah, ov- yeah, obviously, or, or like just pulling the cord on accident
4: and destroying it, or yeah. At
2: something least now like... we
4: can hear that sexy, co- sexy mechanical keyboard ten times better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, hopefully this will help mitigate it a little
1: bit because it's closer to my face and I can mute it a lot easier than the way I used to do it. Because I, I used to basically use a conference call like microphone for like a, a boardroom, and that's um, very unwieldy at times. But yeah, so hey everybody, thank you for tuning in. I realized earlier that there was no music playing at all um, <laughs> when I started the stream. So I apologize to everybody who... I was just sitting here listening to silence and waiting, but we still have people like chatting, which is kind of cool. But yeah, oh, and it also says Sunday stream. Wow, I'm like really dropping the ball today. Um, All right, (laughs) episode 17, bug bounties. Um, So yeah, today we are going to discuss
3: bug bounties and everything that comes with that. So hold on one second. Let me pull up my thing here.
2: So i'll do uh introductions tonight yes actually do that got. real quick sorry yeah. i just i'm getting back in daniel coming at us from across the pond somewhere hermit checking in with microphone tonight uh jen from somewhere magical mg representing the west coast Nux rocking that new device that he got tonight faith keeping us faithful poison keeping us poisoned. I'm read me. We've got Shell and the Master of Ceremonies, you.
3: That was good. I like that.
4: That was good. Yeah. Thanks, I'll be here all night. The Master of Ceremonies, you. <laughs> uh
5: now what do we do?
2: Well, we have some news. I mean, we could. Yeah, we could
6: let's wrap about that, yeah. that 100K bug bounty that Intel paid
2: out. Oh, yeah. Um, Does anybody know?
4: Daniel, you
6: have anything to say about that?
4: Well, uh, it seemed seemed like every, everyone noticed earlier that uh, Intel paid out a $100,000 bounty earlier today. And apparently, it's a new vulnerability that's closely related, quote unquote, to a Spectre variant. So Twitter, Info, InfoSec Twitter, pretty quickly
3: picked that up.
4: Yeah, so 100K, I mean, that's got to be worth, like, a lot more, right? You can buy more Intel CPUs to hack on. <laughs> so what
2: is
4: you that it's uh, a lot more
6: if you sell it to, like, one of the, a back channel, not to a bug bounty? Uh,
2: I, ju- I just mean, like... Uh, you know, like if you look at the amount of money that, and it cost Intel, uh, with with Spectre, and like if they've got a, a new bug, I mean, they're they're making they're making out pretty well on this deal, so, you know buying it for, a hundred k.
7: I think the real thing is here is uh, the the chips that have been patched with Spectre and Meltdown. Meltdown those um. The new microarchitectures that are supposed to fix all this—like, does that now have to happen all over again? That's what I want to know.
4: People keep discovering new vulnerabilities, and Intel keeps fixing them with new hardware. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah it's it's an evil it's an evil circle. Well, you see, you new CPU, new
5: Any any time they introduce any kind of software, they screw
4: that up tragically as the well. The thing is. So. Not oh, everything match can match. be fixed with a microcode update.
8: Yeah, I think the real question is, how many more of these are we going to see? Like, no, so we... Two pretty big ones in like a year.
5: So it has Apple decided whether they're getting rid of Intel altogether and doing their own
7: chips? Well, PowerPC is dead, right? So I remember reading about that. Let me find it.
4: Spark is dead. Thanks, Oracle. Apple plans uh, plans to use his own chips in Macs from 2020, replacing Intel. Yeah, or MediaTek. That'd be great.
5: Suddenly, if iPhones were exactly the same hardware as all the shitty China phones, that'd be fantastic. (laughs) Glorious. So many Zero Days all over the place. So many exploits. Something I was trying like, to prove
4: on my TV earlier and it looks like the internals of the actual computer uh, running LG WebOS is a MediaTek, a, a MediaTek board.
5: Yeah. That's, that's a <laughs> mid-tier, everywhere. Mid-tier. Any mid-tier brand name, that's what you're going to get. What, what are your options? You've got MediaTek, you've got Qualcomm, or you got Intel. Schumer devices. MediaTek is the cheapest by far. So...
3: I mean, it works. TM. Um, so we, we had another um, thing that I thought
1: was kind of uh, interesting today. That was about Timehop. Um, so apparently, people had stolen or had got like, had taken all the data from Timehop, like a uh, like a service that like archives your old uh, Facebook posts. And it um, it like just says like, oh hey, you you know posted this a year ago today, and it'll like show you just old posts to just print them up. And so this basically the data that's on here is everybody's Facebook posts, even if they're private, like, um, which is
4: pretty crazy. There's 21 million users that are using it. Yeah, yeah I think someone popped away. their cloud provider account apparently.
8: Yeah, yeah. It, it included all sorts of stuff like uh, like tokens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, obviously, phone numbers, first and last name, email addresses, all that, all that jazz. You know, it's pretty weird, uh, pretty
3: wild. That this is uh, this was just there, and you could do this. I mean, like it
1: just seems like this is something that I don't know. They would have protect a little bit more, given that it's. Given complete private access to your data, like on Facebook.
4: Even the post that you just posted that's just you, or private, are only you. So, yeah. Very- All social media apps leak so much information lately. There's Facebook with Cambridge Analytica. Uh, there's Twitter with their bot and people scraping and using, abusing their API, and now this.
1: Yeah, no, there's like quite a bit. And I think it's because at this point now, the you know, social media companies have so much data on everybody and they're so ubiquitous that it's like, I don't know, like if you talk to somebody, like a regular person, they say, oh, I don't have a Facebook, or I don't really use social media. It's like seen as weird, you know? Do you like, guys well, are,
7: are you guys getting the the advertising? Like I've noticed on normal TV now there's Facebook ads. Like ads, hey, come back to Facebook. We, we're stopping fake news. Yeah, right.
4: I've seen that in uh, yeah. people uh, defacing real life. Uh, advertisements for Facebook as well. Yeah, yeah, I've seen uh, digital...
7: oh, that I'm down
6: with that. That's cool. I'm
7: gonna find a link to it. Yeah, there's digital signage and shit like all around me that's like uh, Facebook comeback. We we don't share data and we hate fake friends or something. It's like uh Wow. So um, you
5: some kind of McDonald's making a new version of the Big Mac. I'm a little It's about. the McRib.
7: It's the McRib of social media.
1: Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah, MG uh had said that he wanted to talk a little bit about two different stories that we had uh had found uh today for the past week. Um the first one was about the uh DIY guns. Uh MG, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, do you want to walk us through this? Because I I was reading through this and trying to understand a little bit more about it. Uh, What exactly is this?
9: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, this has been going on for about five years, so there's a a long story. But the the summary here is, of course, the 3D printed gun topic in which uh, Cody Wilson and Defense Distributed, his his, uh, organization, posted these online. And the government, uh, federal government, came after him and said... Uh, You need to take those down because this qualifies as uh, export of arms. Um, The the physical file itself, they were saying that was a a weapon. Um, The last time they did something similar was back in the 90s with cryptography. PGP, things like that were considered an arm under the definition of that. The, The law is ITAR. So it, it basically the exact same thing there, uh, you know, obvious nuanced differences. But yeah, they said, you got to take this down. So you know, he took it down, but he took him to court, too, uh, and said, hey, this is infringing on my, uh, what was it, First, Second, and Fifth Amendment uh, rights. And they primarily uh, hinged on the, the First Amendment you know, freedom of speech was being impeded there. The EFF and lots of other organizations came out to kind of defend him in various ways. But, uh, is, is this pl- the, um, sorry,
7: is this the same company that did the ghost gun of the 3D printed, uh, slow yes. receiver of the AR 15? Yeah, yeah, so
9: the, that's two separate things, but yes. So the, the 3D printing gun was called the Liberator, it was just a single shot. Um, and then since they had to take that down, they released, uh, basically a a desktop mill or kind of, kind of like a CNC to do um, lower receivers on on aluminum, which is really cool. And they were selling those and a large part of the sales for that was to fund the legal battle. I think he spent nearly like a million dollars just going after the government trying to get them to say, you know what, you can actually do this. And um, So what happened here recently is the, the department of justice said, they, they didn't, this wasn't a, a situation where he actually won in court. What happened is they offered him a settlement. So that's the government saying, we're not actually wrong here, but we'll do some things for you if you make this go away. So, from most people's perspective, that's a win, but like on paper legally, it's not a demonstration of wrongdoing. An important thing legally. But anyway, what they uh, agreed is that, you know, now he can publish these. And um, they have to pay him back. It's like 10% of his uh, legal fees. They're actually going to revoke the pieces inside of ITAR that they claim they owned. I think they're actually pushing... They're, they're moving the delegation of this off to the Chamber of Commerce. And they have no way of trying to trying to stop this. So, yeah, he's going to be effectively setting up a library. And inside this library, he's going to have the server... That physically hosts these files. It's kind of uh, it's meant to be a bit of a symbolic thing, but yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, and, and effectively, yeah, now now you can upload and serve and download three uh, D print files that are for weaponry. Uh, very very interesting development there. Yeah, absolutely. you wouldn't download an AR fifteen. would you yeah yeah. from from the the guns perspective i know um just to add a little bit in there that they added another interesting bit uh which is that uh, things like ar-15s which the ghost gunner was of course dealing with uh they specifically said that they are not um weapons of war and they're just common use things so uh from the the second amendment aspect of here it's going to have some interesting implications going forward but uh, yeah, if anybody has any questions about that, it's something I've been uh, pretty close to over the last few years, and I can certainly fill in some gaps.
0: i got uh, a question that I just kind of came up with while you were talking about that. Um, nice. So well, Wassonrar is like a thing, right? Like it's weapons of war internationally, and um, it's kind of spilled into InfoSec a little bit because those are actually considered weapons of war. Yep. you had to deal with that at all for... Uh, it, what, what was it specifically? Is there a law? Is it like a? Uh, is it? Was Ro- Wassonrar ever part of the conversation? The oh, uh,
9: you know, I'm honestly not sure. I think everything was ITAR related. But I, uh, I'd have to dig into that specific one. They, they threw a few is, things down.
0: What's ITAR again? Uh import export
9: of arms. Effectively, uh, I think it's in- international trafficking arms oh, okay. regulation or something like that Icar and so yeah I
0: would, I would imagine it's probably along the same lines so interesting. interesting so they didn't classify it as a weapon of war then they classified it as individual like
9: uh yeah they they spent, said that the types of weapons aren't actually weapons of war they're you know they're general consumer weapons but even further that the the files themselves were they fall under the first amendment effectively so that uh Really cool. <laughs> Very cool. But uh, there's a little interesting tidbit in there that they were uh, totally expecting, this delves into the politics of this, but uh, they were expecting Hillary to win. That was a big portion of why they decided to set up a library, is they were expecting that um, they would never have this ruling unfold, or this this um, settlement, rather, and they were going to basically just serve these things up on the internet illegally and wait till the government came after them and, and tried to seize the server and you know, take him take him prison, whatever unfolds but they were expecting a literal gunfight at a library uh, with the server and it's just crazy
3: wow. <laughs> that's really wild
1: yeah. Um, yeah no it's definitely interesting to see how how this sort of plays out because it's just the things that are now possible are just so beyond the scope of what the law could have possibly predicted like 30 yeah. years ago, you, you, mm-hmm. 40 years ago, people who are still in office now making laws would have never been like, hey, you don't know anything about computers, do you? Well, do you think that computers <laughs> could just literally print a gun out? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You, could you never... wouldn't download a car. <laughs> hell yeah it would <laughs> yeah, but nowadays people can 3d print so many things including weapons and it's just like it's crazy that now there has to be just i mean we're gonna get into this this topic uh about site like uh laws uh, in a couple of weeks um regarding computer crimes but it's interesting to see how the sort of scope changes where it's either too broad or too restrictive and
9: definitely yep thing to see play out exactly i'm guessing this is going to set a very interesting precedent for a whole lot of things yeah Yeah. absolutely
0: i think it's a really interesting conversation when it gets into international too i think that yes
9: changes
2: stuff so what about automatic weapons
9: uh yes so there was a couple exemptions in there um uh so the files themselves are their own thing and you of course I'm speaking within the scope of the US anyway. You still have to abide by all the things like you're not allowed to literally make any weapon and if if you're prohibited things like that. The this was specific to just the files themselves, but they did mention that automatic weapons shouldn't be included in this allowance and there's something interesting about caseless ammunition. Um and I I don't know the details on that, but that was another thing that was not allowed and I think it's just something weird about how ITAR Uh, has kind of artifacts built into it so uh, i think over the next week we'll get some details on why that is but it's very likely just uh firearm specific
7: yeah i think if you're um in australia as well like from from our perspective um obviously our gun laws are a lot stricter uh that that anything like you know an ar-15 here is definitely illegal
3: um unless you have
7: a specific permit for like, you know, uh professional culling, I think you, you can get some sort of automatic weapon uh sorry, make no semi-automatic weapons. But anything yeah. semi is like out of the out of the question. It's like um you know uh bolt action fires um you know some like like rim fires and some uh twelve like twelve gauge uh, like a lever a lever action twelve gauges, or, or maybe a pump action. Um, like Santa is probably the fastest unloading weapon that you can legally own. So,
0: so the question yeah, becomes: yeah. What are not what are your gun laws, but what are your printer laws? <laughs> <There> are, <laughs>
7: yeah, I, 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 I think. A... Go ahead. Yeah, I just think if you go ahead and if you were to get one of these devices or download these files in Australia. I think um, because of the way that uh, once you register a firearm, a firearm is registered to a person and an address. It is state dependent. So our state's state to state. But um, there's this th- there's this uh, part where the uh, state police can at any time um, inspect your, your gun locker, which must be attached to like a structural wall and blah, 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 blah. There's all these things. And so if they came into your house and they're like, what's this? And you're like, oh, it just prints magazines and it's like well how many rounds does a magazine hold and um you know these aren't registered and yeah then, then i think you're gonna have a lot like a lot more problems here than you, than you would in the states i think it's yeah really definitely
0: because australia is known for getting rid of all your guns though right
7: no, 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 we didn't get rid of all our <laughs> of guns. We got rid of uh, semi-automatic and automatic weapons. Um, yeah. We got rid of uh, most, like, if you want, you can still own a pump-action um, shotgun, for example, yeah. if you meet the requirements. Um, if you have a specific uh, permit and uh, use case for owning... Um, a suppressor, you can also own a suppressor, but if you don't, you can only own a flash suppressor or a muzzle, a muzzle brake. So and threaded barrels are like, there's a lot of nuances between the states and stuff as well. So you, you have yeah. to know where you are and, and what you're doing. Um, so this stuff sort of might apply to us in the future, but I think right now, I think obviously America's obviously at the forefront.
9: Yeah, the, the, uh, in some ways you guys are better off than you know, the state of California. Like suppressors out here are just no-go in any form. And, uh, uh, you need a, a real good reason. <laughs> it's like, oh, not, yeah, <laughs> totally. We just don't have the option. But, yeah, to kind of tie that together with the the recent news, uh, yeah, if, if I were to want to produce a 3D printed gun, there was actually nothing stopping me from do that, doing that. Uh, to begin with, in context of this, uh, I would just have to source the file not online or you know something like that they they were effectively stopping him from serving the files online everything after that still uh applies so in california I'd get that file and then uh as, as of this year the, the laws they put into place effectively say you have to call the state on yourself to ask them to do a background check on you and if you pass the background check then you're allowed to make your own weapon but also you need a serial number that you put on it as well so Uh, I don't know how well that's actually going to work in reality, but, you know, that's the law, and you would have to follow that uh, if you wanted to make the gun in the state of California, for example.
7: Definitely, I think, you know, like, serialist weapons, like, serialist firearms, uh, um, not even the majority of of illegal firearms in Australia, I believe the majority of illegal firearms here are simply just... uh, Legal, like they would be legal firearms, should they yeah. were, were they registered? So, had they been registered during the few amnesties we've had, where you could take it into, uh, into a gun store and have the police, uh, so have the paperwork filled out, that would then make that, um, you know, uh, firearm now legal, even though, like, you know, it doesn't, it's not <laughs> semi automatic or anything. There's a lot of like real little weird things, but if you have a serialist file, firearm like that's actually a really 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 small percentage of um of illegal firearms i think yeah definitely
1: hey so, so i don't want to pick up uh too much of your time on this uh mg if you want to also yeah yeah talk about the other thing that you had uh had shared as well or want to talk about the uh office 265 stuff
9: yeah that 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 one's uh pretty fascinating as well um yeah. Basically, news broke, and I think it was initially through CrowdStrike, um, but basically yeah. there is a, there uh, was rather, an Office 365 API that was kind of secret, and it allowed much more detailed uh, telemetry and general forensics about actions that happened on that site. Um, I did some digging, and essentially, I'll just kind of tie this together and uh, how it transpired, but uh, for whatever reason, uh, you can make your own assumptions. Uh, it seems like Microsoft had this API in place, undocumented. Nobody that seemed to be using it, uh, that was known. So who, who would that be? But um, they, they had some customers <laughs> that needed this level of uh, detail to do forensics. So mm-hmm. Microsoft was sharing uh, info about how to do that with these companies. And it's a very small group. And eventually, you know, people slip up, whether it's intentional or accidental, uh, and details about that kind of get out. Uh, It created an interesting scenario where a lot of, uh, not a lot, a lot of uh, shops were cut out from being able to do forensic investigations on Office 365, uh, unless they had this, you know, secret access to the secret tool. Um, So a very small number of people were able to use that and get a lot of money from it whether or not they were granted access directly from Microsoft or they just happened to know about it you know through the, through the very small grapevine, it's kind of up for debate, and you know more info has to come out. But um, ultimately, Crowdstrike kind of published this right up and, and kind of discovered how it works. And a lot of people got really pissed off. Uh, a lot of debates happened about either the morality of keeping this quiet versus sharing with the community, um, whether you're, you should be, Educating your customer on how to do this themselves versus keeping it as some secret tool that you can just get more billable hours for keeping your competitive edge against all your other uh, competition up for debate. I've certainly got my own opinions, but um, Microsoft decided to shut that down within a week of news breaking about this. So that you know, kind of adds some interesting mm. questions to the, the situation that uh, I don't know. What do, what do you guys think? I read that uh, certain companies would not hire
4: forensics companies that did not have access to that API. Hey, um, yep. do you have the secret tool?
7: What secret yep. tool? Okay, you don't know. Go away. Yep. What was the? Uh, so, what was the scope? So, was it within? If you have an uh, Office Three Hundred and Sixty Five instance for your company and have like five domains on it, uh, can you only access you know your own domains, or could you start querying external domains
9: as well, or and where, where did it end? Yeah, that's, I, can, uh, I, didn't, I didn't see anything that indicated you were able to see data outside of what you should be able to see, like your, your ownership, but I don't know the full answer to that. I believe there is
4: an ACL, a specific ACL for it. That would make sense. OK. I can't imagine you would be able to read any, uh, like, outside your, your own scope. Yeah, uh, I, can, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true it, it was uh almost key it's not unimaginable feature. but it sounds kind of unlikely well, yeah right
0: the other thing is that if it wasn't widely used or uh looked at uh who knows what kind of flow issues there were with it yep so yeah true all sorts okay. of possibilities there that
9: does add uh, one little point that i forgot which is that uh I, I saw what seems to be you know, a semi-official response from Microsoft or someone claiming they were talking to Microsoft on the phone where uh, Microsoft said that it's a bit of an issue that some uh, in, um, forensics uh, firms may have been over-representing what the tool can actually do and caution that it's, they can't guarantee the completeness of the data. So there may be some interesting cases uh, in the future where these firms who are hoarding the, the tooling and selling access may have actually been uh, selling in, uh, in, uh, improper or incomplete forensics data to their customers. And if those customers figure this out, that'll hmm. be interesting. You know, Who's gonna sue them first, their customers or Microsoft for using their tools and you know selling access to the tools?
2: Interesting. Or someone who got fired because
9: of <laughs> the evidence.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was just an undocumented API to the I service it, that you've bought access to. It does yep.
7: give you, though, if you look at uh, some of the data in the post, like uh, it gives you a little bit of an insight of what Microsoft are storing. But even now, they might not be serving it anymore. It's still getting stored, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think they just re- removed access to view some of it.
4: There might be more hidden unicorn tools that we don't even know about.
3: True. Yeah, it's absolutely people discover sort of uh, secret APIs or undocumented APIs and just like what you can actually pull
1: from them. But um, speaking of data that people didn't want you to see, uh, I saw another really interesting article. Um, well, it's not even interesting as much as it's just like a, another face falling kind of moment. Um, so apparently another fitness app has done another. Uh, exposure of locations of spies and military bases.
4: Oh yeah, Polar. Oh, polar.
1: Yep, Polar. So it's just like,
0: just like the one that happened with uh, Strata. It's like um, exactly the same. It's just yeah. it's history repeating itself. You know?
4: Yeah, and it just the seems thing like is that Polar leaked even more data than Strava did. Yeah. You
0: know? Yeah. Well,
4: what kind of Ooh, stuff did they leak besides location data? Um. You know? Apparently covering everything a user has uploaded to the platform since, since 2014. <laughs> Amazing. The, oh, the yeah. investigation describes all sorts of interesting targets in the data. An officer whose airbase hosts nuclear weapons, Western military personnel in Afghanistan, yet another officer uh, whose profile carries, carries his name, and
9: whose location yeah. hosts drones. I, I think there were a few instances where people who actually set their profile data to private still had their data yeah. exposed, oh, yeah. which didn't it happen was, on the it other one. It
8: all of it. And yeah. like, I'm not sure about the, the first one, if you could find individual user data, but this one was very specific in that you could search by user, um, which means that you could see, like, if someone... Were to say, you know, have, like go on a run around the block, of their office for lunch, and then come home, and then go on, you know, a run at you know, any time between two thousand and fourteen and now from their house. You could match the location of their house with their actual workplace.
0: I swore that the uh, the previous one had that av- av- as well, like the community, yeah, whatever the hell,
7: right? Well, I think what we talked about before, Dan, was we re- were relating it back to um, pleaserobme.com. dot com. That
3: whole, I'm out of my
8: house,
0: and wrote me. No. <laughs> I didn't do too much. Uh, like, looking up on the old one. I did read the article. I dropped it
7: again. Oh, yeah. this, is cra- this is pretty crazy. I think that it's like... Um, well, who's
0: next, right? Like, it's going to happen again, yeah. apparently. And it's going to be, like, in a few months. So who's it going to be
3: is
4: it fitbit i hope not <laughs> yeah oh it, i hope so
1: it just it's a, i feel like it's just a matter of like when at this point for a lot of these things and it's it just it sucks because like what do you i don't know like uh, people want to attract their fitness like it just seems like like why why are these companies
0: just like not handling data properly it's just a little bit the really scary thing the is it's not sorry man it's just not breaches anymore it's actual just like laziness laziness, laziness. yeah
4: i think yeah. it's a fair amount of stupidity as well
0: i think i, I, I think it's desensitized public, like public right a lot of a lot of
5: secure facilities have have uh policies about smartphones and and radio devices they just they just don't allow that sort of stuff on site or they, and they have like uh, jamming equipment to, to disable um, emissions from like Bluetooth and, and, and cell networks. Mm. But we have these like accessory devices that collect data and then are later paired with like an iPhone somewhere else off premises. Um, they're going to have to expand their, their scope to say no electronic devices at all. We're going to strip search you at the gate. Um,
0: yeah (laughs) i think it's
7: unenforceable that's like i think there's a kind of thing whereas um you know the classic uh oh we could build it but nobody stops to think like should we build it
3: yeah or is building it it worth
7: you know is building it and selling it worth more money than uh you know getting looking stupid when there's uh, this not even breach
0: I think people definitely are using it, right? But it's a good uh, example of how policy does not affect anything. It's not <laughs> actually going to do anything for you.
1: Well, speaking of uh, cost-benefit analysis, the next story here I think is really interesting. There's a new, new uh, virus, I guess you would just call it malware, that decides if your computer is good for either mining cryptocurrency or for ransomware.
0: Can you guys read this one? Don't ransom. So oh,
7: basically oh, yeah. like what, like, in the, there's, a, there's a one if else statement. If I have enough power of mine, else ransom.
3: Yeah, it's
7: yeah. just
1: basically like once it spreads, it's like, well, where am I? Am I on like a really like like low end, uh, you know, computer somewhere, or am I on some giant server somewhere, like or some gaming PC, like, you know, um, yeah, definitely That's interesting price.
0: approach. Yeah,
7: it's
0: conditional, seen, right? aws focused one i think
10: yeah. i
7: think the next the thing that will come up will be kind of like you know which coin to mine based on the you know uh the specs and then how much to ransom if it's going to ransom be like oh this person lives in a third world country they probably can't pay that much of a ransom we'll just make the ransom smaller
5: you know what would yeah, be a really a really good ransom would be to insist that the person gets like a decent video card before they could unlock the computer <laughs> <laughs>
0: You imagine uh, <laughs> they could actually check
5: yourself.
1: It. <laughs> multi-stage also, like extortion.
8: Uh, regarding the AWS, AWS does some pretty like uh, like great heuristics. If you try to mine anything on an AWS instance, they shut you down almost instantly.
0: I don't know. they didn't have a problem <laughs> taking my money when I was doing it. It <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
7: took a lot of it. I remember what trying to run that. Like say so when services were banned on. Um, so like, you couldn't IRC from like insert shell, shell provider here. Really? So you just like get the source for IRSSI or whatever, and just uh, run a quick sed and, and a find replace for like uh, IRSSI to KSH. And mm-hmm. it's like, I like corn shell, leave me alone. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, the next one, Oh.
1: Um, this one I thought was interesting too. Speaking of cryptocurrency, um, so Japan has issued their first ever sentence for cryptojacking, for somebody stealing um, cryptocurrency, or for illegitimately mining um, cryptocurrency.
7: Um, I love of, how much the guy made of this. That's the best part.
1: Yeah, wow. a whopping forty-five dollars.
0: What? And they give
1: him a prison sentence. That's fucked up. Five
7: thousand yen. Yeah.
0: Man.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's just they. Yeah. yeah, they basically they use Coinhive, then they got in trouble for it, and that's just interesting to see that people get in trouble for it. And the fact that also that's how much money you make. No, that well, to mention, an
7: example, they're making an example out of that guy for
1: sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
7: We have to remember something about this one. This one um, is a bit different as well because the users who were quote infected uh chose to download this application and run it it just didn't say that it was going to mine crypto so this wasn't like an exploit that that you know started mining crypto in the background or whatever it was just like straight up user wants application user downloads application runs it it mines crypto and we get it it.
5: we get into this gray area where like uh, adware or or any other like potentially unwanted program kind of software um that's okay. In the background as long as it's not actually spinning CPU cycles to do blah. Like that's pretty Yeah,
7: yeah. Blah. You can have 47 AOL toolbars that all like bring revenue back to AOL, but as long as they don't use any CPU, it's all right.
5: Yeah, that well, that's nuts. I mean, mm. yeah, uh, from from a from a crunching numbers perspective, the CPU doesn't know what it's it doesn't give a shit. It doesn't know whether it's crypto or or serving ads or I I don't know why the law would differentiate between computation, but yeah, Yeah, I think because
3: it's
1: it's intentionally, it's intentionally used to make money. It's just another thing that is the laws have to catch up with it. It's, it's pretty, nobody could have predicted even like 10 years ago, this would have been a thing where you could have, Illegitimately somehow make money off of somebody's computer out of nothing. That's just right. like
5: it'd be, it'd be the same as if you're in some some new game and you found a way that if you just kept pressing this button over and over again, yeah. you could defraud money out of other players and steal their imaginary gold coins or whatever. um The law would look at it from the fraud perspective. Like, what was the intent? Was he? Was he? Did you obtain financial advantage by tricking people? Yes or no? no? We don't really care like how you did that, but that's
0: that's the crime. It's really yeah. unfortunate, though, because you're talking about, like, $45. So they they clearly were going after somebody that didn't have any money. Like, this guy did not defend himself to, <laughs> you know, he didn't arm himself to the teeth with uh, the best lawyers. He he got railroaded. It's kind of messed up.
7: Was yeah. there any sort of, uh, I don't think there was any sort of numbers on how many clients actually got hit with
1: that? I think it said 90, actually. Uh, ninety people have downloaded
0: this malware that's or program. Yeah, we could yeah. do a torrent and get more in like twenty-four hours. Yeah,
7: I think, it, I think what you meant to say, Dan, was somebody could make a torrent. Oh, yeah, somebody, that swim somebody.
2: That's guy, that guy. Hey, where is he? Um.
1: so, Um. Yeah. Uh, another story that I saw this week that I didn't get to read too much into, but it was kind of interesting, and I wanted to mention it was that there is a, a cyber espionage group was uh, accused of um, stealing um, dealing certificates for malware signing which is like I don't know they were stolen from the uh, a company called Changing Information Technology Inc and um, it, they've been used to sign <laughs> a, a backdoor
0: to plead malware <laughs> uh, I could see like Netgear being a good one to go after like a well-known mm-hmm. company but man what the heck was the name again <laughs> that's oh no, it's so, uh, changing information technology <laughs> inc <laughs> i mean if i see that if i see a driver signed by that or something it's mm-hmm. uh, still going to pique my interest
7: <laughs> um i think like previously this happened to without shit talking any company without knowing correct like exactly I believe Realtek because uh, they have a lot of oh, manufacturers yeah. for their NICs. I'm, I think Real tech certificates yeah. at one point were used to to sni- uh, Hey, to a lot of the
5: a lot of the actual known um, NSA toolkit kind of binaries was signed with uh, signing certificates stolen from other Taiwan manufacturers.
0: Interesting. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah.
5: The- Code signing certificates just yeah
2: go to Taiwan and. Drop some USB sticks around. <laughs> I mean, Downloading a- drivers from Realtek is sketchy to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> um, a- as
7: far as I'm aware, there's like methods to uh, circumvent the driver signing anyway. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm sure that they're not going to last for a whole great time. But
0: wasn't Stuxnet like one of the first ones that did driver signing? Yeah,
7: yeah. that was the first one that came to mind.
0: Yeah.
7: Yeah. yeah.
5: And then Dooku and Flame and the uh, variants afterwards all had that was one of the original things that tied them together. Researchers put oh, oh okay, this is nation state level. Um with stolen certificates from major corporations. That's uh Calling that's card. not kitties,
7: that's something worse.
0: Yeah, yeah. How much does uh
7: does code sign to code signing certificates actually cost from Microsoft?
3: Oh well.
0: A lot. Yeah that's kind of what my point was though like you could you could just register shell corporations and i'm assuming with yeah. enough money get it right but the right. the deal yeah, was same with
5: ios using... I, I suppose um, but yeah, they're using it, like... it gets a little bit difficult if you get into the whole made for iphone kind of branding thing like licensing arrangements and stuff but i guess microsoft has got something similar but to just sign a binary as like a as real tech or whatever well, th- yeah,
0: exactly. It's like a well-known name, Realtek or Cisco or any of these big companies. You're you're stealing the name, and that's what's I, I'm assuming Plus,
5: bypassing AV. Like that's the other thing. Yeah, that's primarily. No, no one's actually hope they they they're hoping that you never actually get to the point of viewing the
7: certificate that the code was signed with, because that yeah, means that yeah. somebody's suspicious about the executable. Yeah, yeah, and like with the, with the Suns, to be you just like bypass, you know, straight bypass the outer rings without even just white, you whitelisted so... by like
5: Windows Defender, <laughs> yeah, let so, alone yeah. on top of that.
7: But it's let mm. me just load this it's shit insane. into the kernel, kind of what up?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy.
1: Um, so next story that's have in here, which is thought was kind of scary, uh, interesting was. Um, so, Hamas apparently had, had hacked the smartphones of over a hundred IDF soldiers by catfishing them on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, like, I made, heard about that. Yeah, yeah, so, like, the Israeli Defense Force um, had a bunch of soldiers that were uh, basically tricked into downloading some, like, World Cup schedule apps and some uh, dating apps. And they basically just backdoor their phones and were able to, like, spy on them, take the data from the phone, uh i get like gps camera everything um and they did it through facebook which is pretty interesting
7: why do soldiers have phones <laughs> like that they don't compartmentalize from the bed i mean
0: there's a policy against it but also I mean,
7: the like, young soldiers
0: yeah i mean it's
1: compulsory to serve in the israeli defense force if you're in israel so like Oh, yeah. they, they're like imagine being eighteen and being forced to go to the army and just wanting to chat with hot singles in your area like you know obviously mm-hmm. you're going to click on shit like <laughs> it makes yeah. sense it's a yeah. you know interesting target, but it's just interesting to see if that's the that's a tactic that is being used
0: i know i've I've heard this story before, so it's interesting that it's continuing it's amazing I wonder
7: if you're uh, like deployed right you deployed you're in the middle of I don't know, the ass end of Syria or something. And uh, you just get this like hot singles in your area, and you're like, oh, hell yeah. I
3: mean, yeah.
7: <laughs> like ISIS
5: singles, like in, in that area? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Only <laughs> really right. a picture I, of I sheep pops up. The... Oh, my God. <laughs> <I don't> <laughs> This had something to do with the World Cup, though, right? This is yeah.
1: They're they're basically going for like generic, like you know, low hanging fruit. Like, oh, you this, this World Cup app or this dating app. Like, talk to me here. Like the same kind of stuff that they use that we normally avoid. But I mean, if you're bored and maybe don't have the same sort of mindset that we have, I mean, you might be a little more susceptible to clicking on some stupid shit to talk to some girl, even though you're like, we're already talking on
2: Facebook. Why can't we talk here? Uh, uh, and, you, and you think if you compromise one phone, like where is that one phone going to go, you know, after it's compromised all over a base, like to the barracks, yep. into headquarters, like you can base. map out unreal.
1: you can map out schedules. You can map out where everything is just based on somebody's movement alone. You know,
7: like,
0: Oh, a a bunch Well, of phones not even alone. that,
7: like That's when crazy. they're, when they're active, like when they're speaking, they're probably off duty.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It looked like it was doing direct. Chats too. Like they were taking the time to individually kind of spearfish them. So yeah. A lot of effort. That's interesting. It's
7: actually kind of reminds me. It's like, I know this is something we've seen like forever, but uh like a uh, one of those uh, camp girl bots hit me up. But the platform it hit me up through was actually PS4 messages, which I thought mm-hmm. was different. And yeah, it was hitting me up and it was like, hey, how are you doing? Like, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm four and a half. And they're like, oh, what, <laughs> you know, what are your interests on like dinosaurs? And then they're like, do you want to play a game? I'm like, is it dinosaurs? And, like, the bot just does its script, you know? That's like, funny. But it it came out for, like, a pretty funny conversation, I thought.
4: Feed, it, like, a hey, like, Feed it an apostrophe, and it just cukes. Happened on Skype one time.
3: No, oh, <laughs> that's...
1: that's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, yeah, the really bad one, definitely. I've seen Tinder bots and other really funny bots that just, like, poop out so much weird, sketchy links that you just, like say anything remotely out of the scope of whatever the you know, developer decided to put into the thing, and you could just make them
8: stop talking. Awesome. Um, so I f- found what I think is the actual app that they used. They said it was called Golden Cup. Oh, wow. No way. <laughs> is <laughs> that really it? That's so funny. yeah, that's, I mean, that's what it said in the article, that it was called Golden Cup. Um, and it's I a mean, sold- you know, sold- uh,
3: that's
1: cool. We just post that in the Twitch chat, so have fun, everybody. Maybe uh, <laughs> Forarch that's going to take a look at that one, too.
7: Uh, I would recommend to anybody who is going to uh, do that, though, to use an emulator and uh, potentially, if you're going to run it, and, and some uh, tours and some VPNs and all the things, you probably you don't want to probably get yeah. mistaken for an IDF soldier.
8: <laughs> that would be really uh, bad. <laughs> And make sure to spoof your GPS location to Israel.
6: Jeez. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that
1: was like an octave lower than usual. That was good. <laughs> um. But yeah, uh, the last story I have here, I didn't actually get to read too much of it because I saw this later on today, and I was still working and stuff, and I wasn't able to read too much into it. But this thing about Trustwave um, and the the breach with Trustwave, that yeah. Uh, did anybody really read this or understand what this was
4: i read about that but that was a clusterfuck so i didn't really look at it
3: <laughs> yeah
5: um, whoa so the heartland the heartland breach trustwave's being sued for that
0: oh wow uh, yeah that's big news
5: that's like a decade ago
0: yeah that's uh that was
5: the that was the biggest breach i think for a while it was the biggest breach of all time
4: Security yeah, firm sued yeah, for failing sure. to detect malware that caused a 2009 breach. So they found this first breach, but there was a second one they didn't uh, find, apparently. Wow.
5: Trustwave is owned by Singtel, which is um, one of the biggest Southeast Asian telecommunications
3: companies. Hmm. So, yeah, what yeah, actually
1: happened in this? What is this breach? I mean, I'm, I don't remember this. That's kind
6: of disturbing if you can sue someone for that.
3: Yeah, for
0: yeah. not finding well, something so, uh, I mean so, if you pay so, them so to clean up a breach
5: and they don't well it's because of PCI DSS so someone can retroactively mm. say that Trustwave gave Heart, uh, Heartland a PCI tick of approval and said that yeah, is it's certified passes all the compliance uh, and they got popped uh, so apparently I'm just looking over this quickly Trustwave had been contracted to perform yearly checks of Heartland in compliance with PCI's data requirements in 2005. Trustwave did not detect that hackers had installed malware in 2007 through a SQL injection attack that allowed the attacker to issue commands to an internet exposed database. So So this is
7: is related to the whole... A
5: year year later, they also missed malware actively running on Heartland's domain.
7: So this is also related to
3: the whole uh, Unix terrorist deal, right? Uh,
0: For... People that are, ah, like, I think, think it was
5: Heartland. Uh, that was TJ Maxx or whatever, right?
0: I was thinking it was this. I I know where your head was at. I was thinking the same thing, but it, a payment processor. I, th- I don't think it was Heartland. I think it was something else. I don't recall offhand.
2: So, but if you're certifying someone for PCI compliance, you
0: know, it's I, I you. But yeah,
2: you're you're not the one. You're not the one who's. Doing a virus scan on every computer in their whole system, right? You're just
0: well, yeah. You're just no, a QSA. You though, if you're doing audits, you potentially are looking at a virus scan output or looking at processes that yeah. are running. And uh,
7: well, I mean, they could have just like put out like a bunch of QSAs into their different tech departments. And a QSA is a policy person. They're not a um. So you know, they're PCI yeah. policy. They're not. They're not a technical person. So they could've just sat there with the the QSAs in the room and the QSAs got like their 300 page PCI checklist and gone, like, do you hash um, credit cards in this manner? And they would say, said yes. Do you store the first six digits in clear text and uh, for later use? Yes. Do you store the last four digits in later use for um, you know, for uh, the user to see which card they used. Yes, okay, And that, they're the kind of questions that a lot of QSAs are going through. Like, when do you run virus scans? Not like, show me the virus scan. Like, how often do you run them? And show me where they run from and what do they run on? Whether or not that QSA can technically determine whether that's a portion of the network that is relevant, a portion of the network that is not relevant. Like, these are hard questions for somebody who's not in that company every day so which is like you assume that Trustwave would be able to bridge that gap but in any scenario with any size business like bringing in a third party to ask these questions you really need to rely on that company themselves to come back in you know uh tell you the truth and and be able to know what the truth is as well i guess is the hard part
0: yeah i hopefully like people be reasonable and uh it seems like something that should get thrown out pretty so easily. To
5: put on my, um, I don't have a CIS, but to put on my imaginary CIS hat, um, one of the correct um, ways really to deal happy. with it in risk management, right? Uh, this is why PCI DSS enables e commerce to work at all. This is why we're allowed to send credit card numbers on the internet at all, is because we have this compliance standard, which allows companies to transfer the risk away by insuring against it. And that's exactly what they've done here. Um, And that's an acceptable like that's the way banks think they're like, what is that risk potentially going to cost me? Oh, a million dollars? All right, we'll insure it for a million Uh, dollars. We'll
7: insure insure it for 10 million. Now who cares?
0: It even says in the article that they were hired to assess not manage the risk. So that's freaking ridiculous.
5: It's really it's a bad precedent because there's a lot of uh, vendors out there, just like Trustwave, like Qualys, that do on-demand PCI compliance mm-hmm. scans that are just a basic Nessus kind of uh, active scan and spider against like the looking for OWASP top ten stuff, and they run mm-hmm. it in a time box period and they're like, right, well we scanned all of your properties that we can see and SSL is fine, we didn't find any like SQLi or cross-site scripting or anything, so. Here's a tick that says you've had your yearly PCI scan done. Yeah. What's that so other auditor Qualys comes or... says, you... sorry you keep going. So, just so, just to just to uh, emphasize what you said. So when the, uh, the auditor comes along and says, "Do you have yearly securities tests done?" Then go there. Yeah, here you go. Here's the Qualys PCI scan uh, that we paid five hundred bucks for a month ago. Yes,
7: yeah, so Qualys
5: uh, I saw also a guy,
6: that, uh, guy who worked for us. Firelabs at the time give a presentation at one of these local hacker meetups, and he was very uh, unimpressive. I feel like taking a fucking nap, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have a lot of faith in their aptitude, you know, as a company. So whatever, uh, just based on my interactions with that one guy, you
7: know. Yeah, I, I did walk out of a uh, the malware well, show from Mozilla at now. DEFCON. Oh, good. Yeah, so like I was at DefCon one year and they were doing one of their malware free shows and basically the the talk went like this: Here is a post terminal, it's infected with uh, malware. We're going to scan this card, or like we're going to swipe this card, um, and then we're going to run some Perl scripts we're not going to show you. And here's the track data. And I was just like, all right, I'm getting up and leaving. I don't, I can do this at home. I remember that one.
0: Wait, what? Uh, where was it at? That
7: was oh. at DefCon.
0: Oh, okay.
7: I think that might have been the last DEF CON talk I really paid attention to.
0: It. <laughs> you got <laughs> up you got up and left.
7: <laughs> yeah, I got up and left. I was like, this is extremely anim-. like it was that they were like, we're gonna use the term now, C D is everyone following, and I was just like, holy shit. <laughs> wow. Oh geez.
5: I just I just googled something I was just talking about and I found on ISC2.org they're talking about risk management. And as an example of transferring risk, they say uh, you may transfer the risk, for example, by forcing business partners to enter into a binding contract that places huge costs and liabilities on them for security breaches while leaving you squeaky clean. Don't laugh. PCI DSS, DSS does this. That's what yeah, So. Page. Oh, oh, okay. That's,
7: that's the our, system. Page. With Qualys as well, like they have the is it Earth Wave, I think the product is called. I'm pretty sure it's a Qualys product. And they, they want your SSH keys for your boxes to log in oh, yeah, to do scans. Absolutely. So now your SSH keys are in oh, the hands yeah. of Qualys to log into your prod. Like, lol, what? <laughs>
5: yeah, uh, yeah. Tenable does that too. It's pretty standard actually for credentialed scans. This, there's, there's, there's lots of like COBIT and HIPAA and compliance and stuff that says, are you having full, uh, patch management scans done? And in order to do that, you have to log into every single device on the network. Um, yeah. Qu- whether it's Windows or Linux, you have to have administrative privileges to query like patch revisions and kernel versions yeah. and stuff.
3: Service accounts and shit. Um
1: yeah. No, it's interesting to see that this is just, you know, ten years later, somebody can get slapped or something like this. Um, yeah. for not managing it properly. Like actually, um right. faith, it's like as like somebody who does this, you know, what sort of responsibility I guess do you are you liable for when you do a PCI scan or an audit like this?
5: Yeah, I mean, I have, again, the the risk, the risk to me is transferred because I have like indemnity insurance, public liability insurance, every corporation in around here has to have that. Yeah. So transfer it away. So somebody sues me. I I don't know. Do I probably start suing the people that write the tools that I use that gave me a false sense of security?
1: Yeah, like where does it end? Like who is the who's the one person who like screwed it up somewhere, right?
5: <laughs> that swim guy. He that swim guy,
1: he
7: does
3: everything.
1: Well, yeah. So uh, that's like
7: um so like I've been on the other end where I've been the tech guy working with the QSA to get a, a platform certified. And basically after that tick box, like we're we're done, we're good. Like go talk to the QSA, he's the one that ticked the box.
0: Yeah. I think this case will uh, definitely decide it, whatever's, whatever the yeah. outcome is.
5: It'll set a precedent. It's big enough to set legal precedent worldwide, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's
1: really interesting. So, um, yeah, so it's uh, 10.30 now. Actually, Sam Houston
3: just popped in. Hey, can you hear us?
10: Yeah, I can. Hey, guys. Hey, how hey. you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Um, good, good.
1: Yeah, um, so tonight we're actually gonna talk about, uh, actually this whole week we have, we have a couple of different uh, shows at the Sunday stream as well. And um, so we're gonna talk um, at length about bug bounties and just what they are, What Actually I have a whole list of things we we're gonna talk about specifically. Uh, like our experiences, uh, benefits and drawbacks, methodologies, uh, how to actually go about doing bug bounties in the same way, and how to sort of measure the impact and actually communicate that. Because I feel like that's a big thing that people have struggled with is, how do you actually explain what your bug means? Um, Whether it be a bounty or just any sort of disclosure in general. So um, that being said, a lot of us here have done research into this. And we are also graced uh, this episode with Sam from Bug Crowd. And next week, we'll have Casey Ellis from Bug Crowd um, to talk to us about this kind of stuff too.
10: Graced is a little. (laughs) It's a little generous, but no, I appreciate uh, you guys like allowing me to join, and I'm happy to to chat about Bug Bounties. I um, To kind of give a little bit of background on me, I'm the senior community manager at Bug Crowd. And by the way, if you can hear animals in the background, I'm sorry, but I'm at my house no, no, after work, <laughs> so there's noise. But um, oh, yeah, I'm the senior community manager at Bug Crowd. I joined um, almost four years ago. And before that, I did some community stuff at Synac, which is um, does bug bounty stuff as well. Um, so yeah, I'm happy to, to chat about bug bounties. Awesome. Yeah, um, so I guess
1: we can start off just a general question of, I mean, how many people here have participated in bug
3: bounties? Yeah, I tried.
5: Yeah. Yeah, a few times.
3: Has anybody actually gotten paid?
10: <laughs>
5: eventually. <laughs> um, Not a hundred thousand dollars for uh for a, a Spectre bug, but yeah, I got some
10: uh, cbe E seven or whatever.
7: I got I got a couple of bottles of chili sauce. I got a uh I got five hundred bucks and a bottle of uh, a bottle and a box of uh hardware worth a few grand. So
0: I got an email that said uh it was a dupe. <laughs>
10: <laughs> yeah, that can happen. Yeah.
5: I got one the other day, actually, that said your your bug at HackerOne has been closed as this.
4: You're lagging really bad. Whoa.
10: I think I know what he's talking about. Uh, There was a kind of a platform change on HackerOne where, and I'm obviously I don't work with them, so I can't represent them. But I think they made some sort of changes. It highlighted an interesting issue, which is, and it's something that we're thinking about as well at Bud Crowd and we're working on, which is like you have all these companies or organizations that start bug bounties and then they kind of let them languish. (laughs) Or not even kind of, they do. They let them languish and they let them. So how do you deal with those old bugs? So I think that's what might have happened, Faith, on HackerOne is they kind of like mass processed a bunch of old bugs. Um, Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was an
5: API. It was an API. I remember doing a a brief test of it. It was connected to like some other third party. um, And there was nothing to look at. I can't even remember what bug I reported. But it was nothing.
10: It was very, very simple. So happy to not get paid for that one. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, but it, it highlighted I mean the issue that they were like I said that they were trying to solve is is a is one that we need to solve as a as a industry, which is like um, you know, there's a lot of companies in this space or organizations that are operating in this space uh, as a from a vendor's point of view whether they're like offering a bug bounty or just a responsible disclosure or whatever and there's companies that are super active in this space and there's others that maybe started and forgot or maybe they started and didn't realize how much of a time commitment it is or who knows what. Um, but they didn't really kind of follow fully follow through on it. So the unfortunate side of that is you have a bunch of researchers that are checking it out and they're not in the loop on how active or inactive or committed or uncommitted that organization is. So uh, in in terms of how committed they are to the bug bounty and like being on top of it. So it's something that we've had to, there's a bunch of different approaches to it. One of the bug crowd that we took was we started only allowing companies that um, pretty much for the most part, allowing companies that are only willing to like, spend money on it, essentially. Not ones that are only willing to have free, like, they're not, if they're not even willing to pay for the service, as in they're not even willing to pay bug crowd, they're probably not even, not really that interested in the bug bounty itself. So it's, there's some, been some interesting um, challenges, well, a lot of interesting challenges in this space, and that's one of them, where you kind of, uh, weed out the organizations that are not going to be, like, totally committed to this agreement that they're entering in, whether they realize it or not. They're entering this sort of agreement or, or understanding good faith agreement with researchers and saying, like, hey, if I set out these rules, you and if you abide them, I agree to do X. And that's, I think, uh, you know, one of the ways or one of the areas where uh, there's, like, disagreements or problems is because, um You know, you're expecting these two groups to come together and enter this agreement, and oftentimes that the company on that side of agreement might not necessarily be doing the best to uphold their end of the bargain.
3: So now, um, I have a question for how
1: how companies actually approach you, or you approach companies to actually do bug bounties. Because I mean, we see like sometimes very small companies, and then sometimes we see very big companies, and it's just like, how do you actually? get them to get on board because i mean there's there's some companies that i wish would do bug bounties and that had a a, a better vulnerability disclosure policy in, in general um but how does that whole process kind of work
10: yeah i mean contrary to popular belief um at least from what i see on twitter and stuff like that i think a lot of people think that uh bug bounties are a fad or whatever and that the companies are just kind of spinning them up without really thinking about it or something like that or or maybe maybe a, with a more fair argument is that a lot of people think that companies are just doing it as like a gesture of saying hey we actually care about security but they don't really or something like that yeah and i and i don't I don't, obviously I'm biased here (laughs) because I work in the industry, but I don't think that that's a fair representation of the actuality of of bug bounties because as a company, bug crowd, and I'm sure our competitors, well, I know our competitors do the same. We're all going out there and we're beating down doors to try to, you know, get more business as you would expect us to do. And through that process, there's a lot of, education and you know uh, classic sales that has to go into getting people on board with this whole thing because a ton of organizations most of them aren't aren't keen to work with random hackers from the internet you know yeah it's like because that's essentially what you're asking is like hey giant corporation x who probably barely even test their internal pen testers or whatever. Like, how about you invite a bunch of randos from the internet to hack you uh, and yeah. not do anything bad about it, or not do any, <laughs> anything bad with that information?
5: One so, thing that's always puzzled me is, um, do you guys ask of your potential partners, um, whether they've subjected, from a, from a purely load testing point of view, have they subjected their assets to intense scanning? before and yeah. has it fallen over because like if you've never had that before and you suddenly got 100 kids running acunetics and nessus scans across your entire class c stuff's gonna fall over if you've never had any testing done before
10: yeah exactly yeah we had that I'm um, casey could tell this story on sunday when he's on but uh that happened with one of the very first customers that he ever launched on bug crowd you know back when it was just him you know random australian dude yeah. You know, uh, launching it on.
5: It's got a pretty good idea. I know who was responsible for causing that problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
10: yeah. So it definitely happened, and and has happened um, over the years. You basically, what happened is we tr- try to come up with ways that we mitigate that sort of situation. And so one of the ways is, yeah, trying to when you're onboarding them or maybe even in the kind of prospecting phase, which means they haven't signed a contract or anything. They're still like, you know, trying to sort out if they want to work with us or whatever. We do ask them a lot of information, trying to kind of understand their pen testing situation. Like, when's the last time you were in a pen test or what other security stuff are you doing? And we try to get an idea of what your security posture is because that informs how we want to do this. Um, so, so that- with, with the case, yeah. sorry, sorry go on. Oh, well, I was just going to say, that basically informs various things that we, uh, various ways that we go about this. One uh, of which is more more often than not, at least at BugCrowd, we try to get you to launch a private bug bounty first and then go public. Because public, uh, having a public bug bounty or even just a public um, responsible disclosure program uh, obviously it's public, so you're opening yourselves up to a lot of different traffic or um, security testing from a lot of different people which you might not be ready for, whether that's from like an infrastructure uh, point of view or even just like internal teams making sure that all this traffic that they're seeing is not necessarily bad guys, though some of it might be you know there's also good guys in there too. so there's a lot of like internal processes that that company needs to work through. Um, In addition to that, they also need to work through the internal processes of handling all these internal or sorry incoming bugs from a bug bounty. So we have to work through all that stuff regard or beyond just like web traffic or whatever or API traffic or something. So there's that kind of stuff that we have to go through. We try our best. Obviously, it doesn't work all the time. But the one of the method or one of the tools in the arsenal, I would say, is having it be a private bug bounty and scaling it down. Some cases we might only invite five or ten or twelve people. Other cases maybe it's twenty or thirty or more that are invited in that first wave, and then we kind of add them, add in researchers over time. Uh, But yeah, we try to tailor it to each one. Um, I think people have a lot of issues if they try to if they try to approach this with like a one size fits all situation because that's just not. It's not the case, and um, I think that's where you run into a lot of problems. If you kind of underestimate all the shit that has to go into launching these things so that they don't, like, turn into fire.
5: <laughs> yeah, I know that in the early programs, um, uh, there was a lot of confusion over the use of automated scanners and what exactly is an automated scanner. And uh, obviously, understanding you don't want people to just run hundreds of copies of acudetics against a website. but um, yeah. Yeah, that's a bit of a gray area for me because most scopes that I've read of bug bounty scopes have had some, some language around the use of automated tools, but I get the feeling that's more we don't want we don't want you to just cut and paste the output from a tool. We want a little bit more customized than that.
10: It's a bit of both. Yeah. It's a it's it's not a perfect way to it's an imperfect way to try to limit um noise. And also limit noise in terms of, like, overall just scanning traffic, fuzzing, or whatever, the shit out of your website, to knock, you know, accidentally DDoS websites. Because that's, Uh, you know... that's kind
5: of on both sides. Like, so eliminate, yeah, eliminate network noise and eliminate back-end work for everybody else.
10: Exactly. The, The, um... I don't have a great way of explaining, but there, I would say that... For the most part, it's just trying to dissuade that. It's trying to dissuade people that don't really know much about their scanner. they're just clicking a couple of buttons and letting it run because obviously there's a huge difference between like random script kitty downloading a scanner and running it and going like bolt the wall on it, or someone that has a more measured approach to it and knows like how many requests to make per second or minute or whatever, and they can have a more sane approach to scanning you know there's a big difference between those two things that's good detecting
5: um detecting that a particular scan was coming from a, a noisy Research commercial peer? scanner well like if you're detecting user agents as coming from you know nexpos or qualis or something like that does that disqualify somebody from a bug bounty if it says no use of automated scanners
0: um i think maybe a more pointed question would be if it's an automated scan and it produces a good result without denial of service. Is it usually fair game?
10: Yeah, I think in general, as long as there's like not a negative impact on the service or customer or whatever, uh, it's usually fine. There's That's awesome. it's it's not like no one's going to be like yo dude you found this using burp suite like get the hell out of here like there's uh, yeah. a
0: t- I you know thought I'll be honest I actually yeah. used to
10: that uh, I think so I thought I think I've heard of occasions
5: where that's happened actually not yeah. burp suite in particular but
10: yeah yeah that's that's at least not our intent um, and I'm glad to get on here and to talk to it and that's, frankly why I enjoy like going to to CON and stuff and trying to branch out beyond just like bug bounty hunters which is you know where I spend 95% of my time is just t- talking to bug bounty hunters. Um but yeah, there there I mean there's researchers, there's very prolific uh successful researchers that mostly run automated scans to look for various things that they've found to be, you know, regularly occurring issues and they run scans to find those things and then they report them and you know, they make money off them. Uh so it's not I would say automation isn't banned outright it's more like i it's a like i said it's it's a not a great way to basically just say like please don't negatively impact the quality of service for other researchers or for users of this service that's kind of like a verbose like english speaking way to put it but it's hard to put that in so many words for people that might live in india or egypt or pakistan or whatever it's hard for me to describe to that to you in english let alone another language
5: I don't I don't even think if I if I was an Indian dude, I wouldn't even be paying attention to the scope. I'd just be firing on all cylinders and just shooting out as many bug reports as I can in the hopes that I get one to pay.
10: Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. And I think that's I think um that's one of the interesting discussions around the bug bounty community because I think there's a lot of racism <laughs> in security industry when it comes to people talking about Indian or Pakistani researchers or people from the Philippines or whatever because they basically, they're used to getting like shit reports into their security app. And so basically, a lot of people in the security industry, I think this kind of goes into what I was talking about earlier around this misconception of bug bounty basically being this like band-aid uh, a, it's a band-aid, and and B, you just get like bullshit bug reports. And I think people get that idea because that's what comes into your security at, is someone uh, emails you and says, "Hey, I found a security bug. Please uh, PayPal me five hundred bucks or something, you know, or I'm gonna disclose it."
0: Mm-hmm. And that's it's an, yeah, it's an easy target to make fun of. Uh, it's it's easy an easy thing to kind of. Yeah. Yeah. How
5: do you it, it... respond in those situations where a researcher and it's happened many times where they've they've gone ballistic on Twitter because a bug has been closed. I've even just searching Twitter now for bug crowd, I'm seeing people complaining about the same thing. Yeah. Um, where they've emailed where they're basically trying to extort bug crowd or they or they they're threatening. They're like, I will release this to Broken Crew and then you guys
10: will pay. Broken group. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's going to change over time because, I mean, uh, as we get into more difficult targets, I think that's going to be an interesting, continue to be an interesting problem. Because right now, it's like, dude, no one gives a shit about your XSS. Like, no one's going to, ZDI is not going to buy your XSS for $10,000 or something. You, You know what I'm saying? So it's not too much of an issue, or at least you can kind of like, mitigate that a little bit on the website. I think it's gonna be a little bit harder when we're going into to, into car vulnerabilities or hardware or whatever, when the, this um, impact is higher and therefore people are gonna expect more money um, or have at least some yeah, yeah. amount of leverage. Like that Spectre variant vulnerability
5: that got 100K from Intel or the sort of um, the sort of bugs that could be sold to a Zerodium or a azimuth or something for Or, you know, a to Touring level kind of bug. It's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars
10: on the black market. Exactly, yeah. So I think, think, well, to answer your question, a lot of it utilizes the relationships that I've built and other people that I work with, like Casey, um, or just plain old talking to people and just trying to talk them through it and talk them down um, and try to understand why they're frustrated. It's kind of like classic... um, like conflict resolution type stuff, you know? Hostage negotiation. Dealing with, yeah. <laughs> if dealing
5: with, especially if you're dealing with um, you know, uh, actual, actual teenage kids who don't have a lot of experience. They don't corporations or business or money. They don't understand these things.
10: Yeah, I think a lot of it, or at least sometimes it happens because someone thinks that what they found is a big deal and it's actually not a big deal. Um, and so you have to kind of explain that to them. Sam, um, so you mentioned
7: like um, earlier that that some of the companies that you deal with um, becoming you know, partnering with Bugcrowd, that they they don't have uh, good internal security practice, or maybe they don't do internal security audits. They're putting Bugcrowd on top, um, and then now they're getting these reports in that might actually be critical. Is there a step that you guys take in between to try and sort of? Um, you know facilitate the communication between the researcher and the uh and the company that's doesn't realize that uh cvss 10 out of 10 is actually bad
10: yeah yeah so um i would say you know i i firstly i don't want to try to say that you know any one bug crowd customer is one thing or the other they're you know super secure insecure whatever they come there's they come across all different spectrums um, and we try to help them along the way uh, to to become more mature, obviously, and become more secure. So um, if there is a disagreement, and this can happen with any sort of company. It doesn't necessarily uh, matter about your security maturity or situation. It might be just like the person that you're working with. Just doesn't like the, the security analyst or whatever at the at said company just doesn't think that this is a big deal for whatever reason and that totally happens. I just heard an example about that the other day where this one person at this company just thought everything was shit and then it got moved over to a different person in the company and everything was fine. you know so obviously people are people and there's a variety and, and things like that uh, with that. But uh, I would say in general, um, when there's a disagreement, We ask people to reach out to BugCrowd and then ultimately what happens is then we go and talk to the customer. So that's been the benefit. There has been a lot of uh, pluses and minuses to BugCrowd's approach to to this marketplace, which is what we would call as more like a managed marketplace. And that means like we can't we can't just sign up. like we can't just stand up a website and say, Hey, we got supply and we've got demand and we'll just match them up and everything will be cool. No, we realize like we have to manage the bounties, we have to like walk you through this launching process and we'll just we match them up and everything up up with, will be with, cool. You know, the program no, we, we realize time, like we sure have to manage well. the bounties, we and have so to, like walk due you through that launching and process do like that. and yeah. we'll just, we facilitate we try to facilitate oh, bounties God, and, we have so, and also have the back of the researcher in these sorts of conversations. So we make an argument to the, to the customer and say, hey, we think that this is actually a higher severity. And in some cases, if, you know, say we still don't, we feel like there's not a great resolution to the problem. We actually have a pool of money um, that we set aside every year that we pay researchers out of, out of our pockets, basically, to try to, we call it make it right. Uh, Because we don't, we feel like it's our obligation to kind of keep this a health, healthy ecosystem to kind of make up for some of those what we feel might be, you know, the wrong decisions or whatever. That's but cool. ultimately, it's it's the customer's money that they, you know, that they set aside this bounty budget to pay people out of. So we try to kind of come in on top of it in some cases to try to make it right.
8: Uh, can you okay, talk the to the by, like point the of where
10: scenario, people yeah.
8: in like countries like Syria and whatnot yeah, are they're doing bug and not being able to get paid out. Yeah, out?
10: yeah, I saw that. Um, just the other day, someone was tweeting to Casey and I about that. Um, that is due to them being in um, a sanctioned comp or country, you know, U.S. Mm-hmm. San- san- sanctioned company country. So we were just like limited in our ability to pay them. I, uh, for better or worse, don't really know much about the legal stuff on this, so that's kind of the limit of my ability to speak to it, but that's kind of the situation. So I think in that case, they were getting paid from a Facebook bug bounty, and they had emailed Facebook, and Facebook was going to see what they could do. So I hope they come to a resolution there.
7: I know a little bit about financial sanctions, and in in the States, it's uh, OFAC, OFAC, I believe Um and thing. once once sofax say that you can't send money to this country you're not sending money to that country it's like that's the end of the that's yeah. you know it's a, it's a higher government thing no no company can really you know resolve that easily
10: Yeah yeah,
9: yeah A qu- couple of questions for you uh the the make it right thing is really cool uh I don't the, do you know if uh, other programs do something similar to that
10: I don't know um it's uh it's something that we honestly it's not like something that we market or, or whatever oh, yeah. at bug crowd um and it's something that kind of i feel like at least i i'm not the person who created it but i observe it through slack channels and stuff and it oh, seems definitely. like it kind of came out of necessity cuz i you yeah. know bug crowds 120 people and i've i've been there for a long time so i'm not involved in everything uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's it seems like it was kind of born out of necessity. It was like, hey, we feel like th- we need to make sure that these researchers understand that we feel they're valuable. And yeah, yeah. We, yeah, so it's like, in a perfect world, we wouldn't need it, but I'm glad that we do. Um, and no, that's great. And I hope that over time we won't need it as much, you know what I mean? Um, but, yeah, yeah exactly. like, a lot of time... Goes into um, into talking to these companies, and we have you know regular checkup calls with our customers, kind of just normal uh, program health is what we call it. Program health kind of meetings, and just saying, hey, your bug bounty is doing this, that, or the other thing, and this is what we think we need to do to. To get it in the direction that we want it to be in, if it's not, or whatever the situation is. Um, Yeah, definitely. So, so, yeah, it's that consultative approach where it's like, hey, you know, you should be paying more to be more competitive in this space, or hey, you need more scope because your bounty is like way too restrictive, or whatever. Um, And then, you know, we hope that they make the right decision.
9: Nice. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's cool to see, you know, filling that that obvious gap that exists. Do the uh, do the customers see when you do one of the you know the make it right payments? Is it kind of like a, a bit of a feedback cycle of like, hey, we're gonna fill the gap because you created the gap. Maybe you don't make the gap?
10: <laughs> that's a good question. I'm not sure. I don't think it's in the platform, but uh, I don't know if we okay. have email that's a good question. Um but at least they would know they would probably know at least that there was some sort of discussion around. You know payouts or something or that we wanted we thought it should be higher or something um so yeah that's a good question but a lot of this i mean to be honest with you it's we're all making this up as we go along that's kind of the 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 interesting ride of working at a startup and especially being in a space that didn't exist really um like five years ago so these sorts of things like the make it right, they kind of just pop up and then you kind of figure out how do you support it and keep it going and figure out when you need to build it into the platform and all that kind of stuff. So those are yeah. kind of like the daily, uh, uh, you know, conversations that happen at bug crowd is that kind of thing. It's like, all right, how do we tackle this problem? And then like, is this something that Sam can do on his own and then we can build it in the platform later or what? And so. Yeah, I feel like make it right. is kind of one of those things where it kind of came out of necessity. And then we figure out how do we build it into the core thing if we need to or whatever. Yeah, exa- I mean, exactly. It's, it's just this fundamental thing. It's like, holy shit, that's really cool. I mean, I come from the internal
9: side where I'm trying to change an entire company's approach to things, maybe trying to establish an entire security function. And you know a lot of the problems are the same. But since you guys are external, it's you, you have these different tools to use to solve certain problems. So uh, that's just a really cool one that I hadn't even thought of before. So,
10: yeah, it's it's given me, and I came into security from a consumer background. I worked in consumer technology. I worked in the video game industry. That's how I got my start. And so I came in. Um, I came in not necessarily like relating to the giant banks of the world that, you know, you want to get bug bounties. I came in relating to hackers because it works out that a lot of hackers are also gamers. At least they have a lot of the same interests. And yeah. we're mostly, we're all nerds anyway. So I could totally relate to that. Uh, I was a computer nerd and, you know, took computer networking classes and stuff. So I, I felt like I jived really well. But, um, but yeah, over time, what I've really learned is exactly what you're kind of talking about is like, I, I feel like the hackers and the people on the blue team, or you know, the defensive side, they're all the same. They just took a different fork in the path at one point, and you know? that, I, I really love that. I mean, that's part of why I love going to DEFCON and or and even our RSA, even though it's like <laughs> just it's uh, or Black Hat, even. Um, because you get to meet a lot of these cool people and get to see um, the security teams behind some of the big- biggest corporations in the world. They all care about this stuff as well, and they're often times on the same page as you. They're trying to convince the people above them that this is something that's a good idea or, you know, that yes. doing security stuff or even allowing people to responsibly disclose. Um, exactly. You know, all that sort of stuff is a cultural shift. I mean, a lot of big companies, they're like, so you're saying that it's somehow good that I talk publicly about problems that we have in our products. And it's like, yeah, and that's a very counterintuitive thing um, to a lot of people. And that is part of this overall issue. A lot of companies don't want to admit, I mean, that's why we have, there's a lot of reasons why we have a private bounty, private bounties with people. But in some cases, it's just because they don't want to, you know, they don't want it out there that they run a bug bounty for some reason. Yep. And, Are there, uh, um,
9: oops, yeah. sorry, go ahead.
10: No, I, I didn't really have anything else.
9: Yeah. Um, so have you run into any companies or maybe patterns of behavior uh, culturally that just tend to indicate, uh, you know, a, culturally fa- a cultural failing within security that you guys might not really be able to fix? And I'm I'm not necessarily, uh, I'm not asking how how you go about handling that situation, just more so what are the patterns you've seen that kind of indicate this?
10: Oh, that's a hard, well, I guess I, I would say on the, it's easier for me to answer the reverse of that, which is like, I feel like the easiest people to get along with are people that are already a part of the community and that yeah. are already, like, it's like hand and glove. You know, they're already hanging out. They're the people that go to Black Hat, but they're still there on Thursday and Friday and hanging out <laughs> at DEF CON. They're just not wearing, like, a suit or whatever. They're wearing, like, flip-flops and, a, and shorts or something on that yeah. Friday. So I found those people are the ones that totally get it. And they're the ones that you don't really need to convince. Um, and hopefully they're, like, influential within their company and they can argue it up. You know above them yep. uh but it's it can be like cultural differences like sometimes it's like the you're working with the company based in North America, but the mothership company is based somewhere else that's maybe not as progressive culturally, yeah. or even just companies in general where infosec is not necessarily like a part of their culture where uh you know the di- uh, the uh, contrast of that would be or different flip of that would be like Tesla, where their security team, their people that work with the bug bounty, a lot of them are bug bounty testers themselves, or bug bounty researchers themselves. Um, And the guy who runs it, you know, used to run the security program at Apple. And so they're like, they're in the hacking community. And even Elon Musk, even I know he gets a lot of Twitter hate right now, but (laughs) Elon Musk even is like interested in the bug bounty and security stuff. So it's like from the top down, uh, they have that they security is not necessarily like a weird thing where I think the companies that security in general just doesn't greatly fit into their culture, they I imagine they have a lot of issues in general trying to get people on board with security and bug bounty is gonna definitely yeah. be one of them.
9: Yep, absolutely. That mirrors a lot of what I've seen. H- have you noticed that um I-, I don't know if you have a way of measuring this or even ability to talk about it, but over the years, have you noticed the black market aspect of this uh, grow and or decline in any ways, uh, probably in relation to uh, commercial bug bounty programs.
10: I guess is your question, um, are, the, are the hackers and bug bounties tempted by the black market or, am, or is it more of a general question um, Have they seen the black market grow in general?
9: Yeah, has it grown or declined kind of just with the, the way the markets have changed over the last few years
10: that might be a better question for Casey on Sunday because he's a lot more, you know, higher level, uh, both in terms of the company, but also like across the industry. He pays a lot yeah, more true. attention to like the macro stuff when I'm kind of like day to day. So heads in heads down into the bug bounty industry. Yeah, um, that
1: down for, yeah. That's interesting because like I had a question too of like, do you see people in the black market trying to undercut the, uh, the yeah. Or overcut, sorry, overpay. Like, oh, like we'll give you five hundred dollars for like a you know SQL injection. Well, we'll give you a thousand dollars for it. like. It's definitely more valuable to the person in the black market.
10: Yeah, so, I think I I over the last you know handful of years, I don't really see anyone discussing that on the web side i think that's gonna and, or the mobile side even i i feel like that might become more of an issue as we get into harder and harder targets i mean you guys were talking about the intel bug bounty yeah. today um which paid out a 100 grand for a cve seven i think it was seven something i was checking that out earlier um so they're an example of kind of a new frontier and i think I mean, I could be wrong, and and maybe HackerOne has figured out how to really tackle that sort of uh, bug bounty researcher. But it, in my experience, at least, those people are hard to come by. Because, you know, it's like with car bug, bug bounties. The guys who hacked the Jeeps, Chris and um, uh, I forget what their names were. Sorry, I'm spacing right now. Um and all. yeah, yeah 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 like they're they didn't do bug bounties like they didn't because the, the they spent they spent more money on buying that car and hacking it and stuff like that than they would have probably even made on a bug bounty so yep. there's this yeah. the industry yeah. is kind of maturing on the same like uh the same sort of the token low or whatever tesla has paid out quite a bit of money and bug bounties um, to researchers. In some cases, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars or whatever to individual groups. So um, there is decent amounts of money, but I don't. I guess long story short, I've not seen that conflict yet on the web or mobile side, but I'm wondering if that's going to be the case as we start. Um, going into more reverse engineering and other skill sets that are a lot more refined and a lot more niche. And that, therefore, uh, the impact of the bug and the value of the bug is going to be higher. And also, the uh, like, the war for that talent is going to be a lot more heated up. So we're going to have to come up with ways to incentivize those researchers to spend their time on this stuff. And also, we're gonna have to incentivize them to spend it on reversing instead of doing web or mobile bounties or whatever, which they could be doing at the, uh, also. Because a lot of researchers have these different sides of, different skill sets and if I'm asking you to like break open this IOT thing and try to reverse it over several over like a whole entire weekend or you could hack on this website and make you know potentially the same or a lot more money because you're going to maybe h- find a higher volume of bugs or something you know those are the interesting uh, things that we're taking in or we have to keep in mind is that we're I'm not only in a war for your attention against other bug bounties, but I'm in a war for your attention against like your kids or watching TV or just chilling out or doing whatever, dorking around <laughs> on a podcast on Tuesday night. You know, the, like that's that's um, that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff that we're up against. And so uh, I don't say that I'm not saying that as like a Facebook executive because I want you to spend more time in my app. It's more that we need to like be humble when we think about how we structure these things and really make sure we do our best to make these things as easy as possible to get into and to make money and stuff.
5: Sam, I, I had a question um, that you just reminded me of, which is um, if Tesla is paying out quite a lot in bug bounties, um, but from what I've seen, I'm trying to think of who has actually paid out the most money inside BugCrowd or HackerOne's ecosystems. Um, thinking like Yahoo or Riot Games or one of these guys. Yeah, uh, it seems that the gaming the gaming um, projects get a lot of attention and pay out
10: quite well. Uh, uh, yeah, I think. I well, know. bug bounties I aren't too. Big. I
5: thought, sorry, I'd, that's the extra thing I was going to ask. Um, a lot of the the gaming guys, the people that find hacks on games, that are primarily gamers first, and they're. The hacker guys, second, they're griefers. They want to find, you know, wall hacks yeah. and aimbots and stuff. But a lot of the times, these guys that are finding bugs in games in order to get a ad- competitive advantage in those games, they're actually finding like remote code execution and stuff. They don't care about that. They care about winning the game. They don't care about popping shells on the desktop of the box. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So how, do actually- you how do you judge the value of those? Because in a competitive esports kind of environment, um, uh, a stressor or a Buddha or one of these shitty kind of kitty from our perspective, we think that's terrible, but, uh, that's just how they're applying the bug. They're using it to, they could make quite a lot of money by having a competitive edge within one of these games. Um, uh, how do you judge the value of a bug given that kind of, um, additional marketplace?
10: Yeah. It's like a beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and sorry to interrupt you earlier. I was just going to say, uh, Riot's kind of an outlier. There's not that many video game companies in Bug Bounties. There's a few, obviously. There's like Rockstar, Nintendo, and Riot on HackerOne, and, and Bug Crowder has a few as well. Um, there's not too many. I would say the companies that pay out a lot of money are the ones that are, like Riot, like Riot in general is just doing well as a company. LOL, League of Legends just makes money hand over fist, and they have quite a large security team, and I'm I think it's awesome that they've dedicated that much resources to a bug bounty and their larger security team um but uh, in terms of how do you how do you understand the value of a bug um for me it's all around uh or a big part of it is impact right so that's what really matters i think it's part of why bug crowd created a taxonomy called the vulnerability rating taxonomy it's mostly uh it's mostly focused around web and mobile vulnerabilities. Uh, but we created it as this kind of standard uh, because we, because of exactly that kind of question, essentially is like um, impact is different based on context and the application, the type of application. Are we talking about taking over the shopping cart of like an e commerce app or just the settings on a little tiny side app or what? You know, what are we talking about here? Um, that to me is a big part of how you figure out the um, the overall dollar value of a bug is the impact, the actual impact of it.
5: Yeah, um, I mean, it gets a little tricky. Like a cross-site scripting bug against uh, an internet banking portal is obviously something that could be could be used by bad guys to make a lot of money quickly. But it gets a bit more esoteric when it's. Um, when it's a, bu- a cross-site scripting bug against, say, Riot Games, that might allow you to, in a roundabout way, get access to some other gamer's profile and change things, move things around, I don't know, make money in that way in-game. Yeah. So you might need to talk to an actual gamer to realize the impact of that particular bug in that game ecosystem. It's not as obvious as like monetary advantage in a you know, financial app.
10: Well, the money skills, the payout skills are going to be relative to that company's industry, typically, or the type of app, right? So, like, financial companies are going to pay differently than car companies for bugs. So it's also, it's all relative to that, like, industry and what they're kind of up against. So there's a little bit of that, too. There are market dynamics in play. And if that bug bounty wants to be, uh, you know, so to speak, competitive with other bug bounties in that space, they should have some sort of, Um, hopefully, you know, compelling payout sort of schedule for that sort of bug in the context of their business, you know.
5: you have some kind of uh, black market metric that you could use as an example? You can say, here's an example of a similar bug in a similar company that is currently or has been sold in the past on black market forums for this amount of money?
10: Um, I couldn't. Casey might be able to. I just, I honestly haven't really messed around much with the... With the dark webs, I hang out with all the <laughs> the white uh, hackers and stuff like that, the bug bounty. Yeah, hunter.
4: it's the same. It appears like, stuff, so. it appears <laughs> like the, the black market um, buyers. They've come out into the light, but I think there are uh, more than, than it seems.
10: Interesting. Yeah, so you feel like there's yeah. more more demand. Like
4: zerodium or whatever, for, for instance. Yeah, they're they're like um, openly zero day brokers. Oh. Yeah, they're not yeah, they're, just on Darknet Tor forum anymore.
10: Yeah, they're they're an interesting company. They're, um one of them gave a presentation at B sides, San Francisco. He gave like the keynote that I attended, and they're really interesting. I didn't really understand them before, to be honest with you, um, and now I have a little bit better of an understanding. I mean, essentially. You know, they're buying bugs so that they can patch Trend Micro's customers before everyone else, and then they give that bug to Microsoft so they can patch all us plebs. You know, so they're, that's kind of zeroed. That was kind of my understanding, at least, it seems like, of ZDI's kind of business model is buying bugs so that they can make sure that all their customers are taken care of before everyone else, and then they, you know, responsibly disclose it. It's kind of a weird sort of situation. Uh... Yeah, why not? Let's
5: just go with
10: that. <laughs> I, th- I mean, maybe there's other stuff too, and I, I don't know. It, it, but at least with bug bounties, the way we do it, you know, we're working directly with Tesla. We're not, like, we're not just putting up a Tesla webpage and saying, like, hey, we'll pay you a shitload of, of money for a big bug. It's, no, you know, we're working directly with, with any of the companies that are on BugCrab.
3: No, that's really cool. So, I
1: mean, so you do more of the community side stuff and, like, I, I'm kind of just curious on how do you sort of work with, I guess, maybe, like, newer people to this or younger people to this to get them involved in it? Because I feel like some people don't really, I mean, they they understand, like, that it's like, a, oh, I'll make money off of it, but I guess, how do you build the sort of community to make somebody from strictly, like, as we were saying before, like, just firing up, like, Nessus or any other sort of automated tool or... um. <clears throat> and like trying to to go for pretty basic level things. How do you sort of work with those kind of communities to build people into being, I guess, a bit more acute and aware of like how to actually do stuff?
10: Yeah, it's, um, we're still figuring it out. Um, all of us in this space are, uh, where we create, you know, educational content. I've written blog posts, like if you Google, um, I think it's like how to be, become a bug bounty hunter or how to get started as a bug bounty hunter. You'll find a blog post that I wrote that we link a lot of people to on bug Crowd, where it kind of walks through the basics. It talks about reading the web applications hacker's handbook, reading the OWASP top 10, um, checking out things like WebGoat and other uh, free pieces of software, vulnerable web apps and whatever that you can um, mm-hmm. practice on. And then I encourage people to try out bug bounties. Or uh, on bug crowd, they are basically responsible disclosure programs, or we mm-hmm. call them kudos programs. Um, in some cases, those are going to be things which haven't gotten as much attention from other people. Um, or even just programs like ISC squared, which we, is a customer of ours, and you can get um, credits for your ISC squared um, membership uh, no. through hacking with them. So, so um... yeah. So with uh, so
7: if you have, so like, so say somebody you knew had a bug that had that was was pretty critical, and there's a bug bounty um, available, and that bug bounty um, and the company that that that's uh, is vulnerable is paying out in like thanks or t-shirts or something like that, but it's actually a bad like a serious bug. Is there something you guys can sort of say to them where you go like? You know, do you how how like do you re-engage with that company over time to rather than just use your own money to patch the difference?
10: Yeah, and I I wouldn't. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's probably been some cases where we've money for bugs that haven't been paid or something, but we typically I'd say while that does happen uh, sometimes where a big bug comes into someone who's on a company that's only running responsible disclosure. Um, I'd say oftentimes the conversation is more like, hey, you're running this thing, and yeah, you're getting some good stuff, but you could be getting some even better stuff if you actually paid, you know what I mean? So it's more, I guess it's kind of, it doesn't necessarily help that person that found that really badass bug, um, or maybe it will, actually. Sometimes programs do convert to paid, and they kind of come back and, um, and get back those people that did well for them. Or in some cases, like Fitbit, they run, um, for a while they were running a public responsible disclosure only, and if you found something cool, they would invite you to their private bug bounty that they pay on. So there are some different circumstances or situations, but I'd say as bug crowd, I try to use it as an opportunity to say, hey, you just got this cool thing. So that shows you the value of working with external researchers, working with the crowd, you could be doing even better if you actually paid for uh, paid researchers. And actually you could get that person to keep coming back and become a, you could say like become a patron or become a, you know, uh, an active member of your individual bounty program. If you pay them and treat them well, because that's something that we've seen. There's really great stories out there about like um, Aruba networks is, has been a longtime customer of Bug uh, crowds. And one of the researchers that started doing really well on the program was this uh, guy named Luke Young, who's a young, researcher uh he's in his early 20s who um you know just he borrowed an aruba device from his college's network because they had some old devices and he started messing around with it and he made some decent money and became and built a relationship with the guy who runs the program over there john over at aruba and you know that's helped luke uh, in job interviews he now works at linkedin he got an internship at uber and linkedin and now he works full-time at linkedin um, so there are like great stories there of, and he and by the way, Luke still submits bugs to Arubas program you know years later. So there's a lot of benefits to companies investing in the individual researchers on their programs and building a relationship with them, in that that company will continue to to hopefully receive bugs, and um, those bugs will continue to be more complex and um, higher severity because those individual researchers are just spending more and more time with that app or product, whatever it is. Nice.
9: Uh, On that general uh, theme, in terms of kind of setting it up for the researchers, have you noticed, I don't know, what's the temperature within your customers for introducing Safe Harbor?
10: Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's been a hot topic lately. in the bug bounty industry especially on twitter and stuff and we've had a lot of discussions recently around it so bug crow did a uh, casey actually he did um, a webinar recently around safe harbors and we added safe harbor um to our individual bug bounty
9: yes good job (laughs) yeah
10: and we're going to work on rolling that out to other customers um nice I, that, that'd be actually a really good conversation with Casey to hear his thoughts on it uh, around cool. Safe Harbor. But yeah, the, generally the goal is like we want to make it a standard so that like future companies will say, hey, this is a thing that we think you should do, and it's going to become standard on all our stuff. Is that cool? Or whatever. It'd be kind of more like an opt-out rather than an opt-in. You know, yeah, yeah. Where, like past companies it's going to have to be more of an opt-in. So it's nice. we're going to have to, you know, explain to them the value of this and why it's important um, to them and to researchers. Uh, nice. And, you know, because it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Like we are asking people to trust each other. And that's, what's the interesting conversation around safe harbors because uh, the question that was asked is like how the hell has this worked without safe harbor like why are yeah. like you don't see people getting sued like you see people like kevin getting threats from uh from drone <laughs> manufacturers or whatever yeah and that's unfortunate um but luckily those are mostly few and far between or not as common um yep. yeah so I know kevin. yeah so it's it's kind of a it's a cultural shift and um it's an, one where we need to educate people and say, this is important. Um, there's a ton of benefits to working with the, re- the researcher community. It's yeah. like you pretty much can't, I mean, you can, you can try, but there's like, you can't really argue with the results. So the future, like Casey's basically saying uh, as like kind of an ambassador of this whole thing, he's basically saying the future is working with researchers. You need to yeah. get on board now. And it's nice. kind of up to you to making sure that that works well. And so he's you know that's we're trying to we're basically positioning ourselves to be that shepherd um but that's really? I think that's kind of the the message uh from the industry is like, dude, you're gonna have to figure out how to work with security researchers. So let's make sure that we're entering in this in a way that is gonna be great for both sides. It's great nice. for you as a company, because your PR team can freaking chill out, your lawyers can chill out, and <laughs> um, you know it's gonna be cool. And then on the researcher side, hey, it's you, know, you should have a good understanding of what you're getting into, whether it's like, You're not gonna get weird cease and desist emails. And you also should have some sort of understanding of what you're gonna get out of it. That's why we wanna have, you know, we have rewards tables on bounty briefs, which is not something that we had before. It used to just have like a reward range of 100 to 1500 or, you know, 100 to 10,000 or something like that. Where now we're like saying, hey, in this block of priority, you know, we have a scale of P1 through P5. And we say, you know, P1s are this range to this range. Because we want, we want um, researchers to understand that when they're going into it, when they you know start hacking on a program. We don't like you to be surprised on the back end of the experience.
9: Yeah, definitely. And that's, yeah, that all comes after the initial hurdle of accepting that direction. Have you seen a lot of maybe internal legal teams push back and say, no, man, there is no way to can accept St. Oh, yeah. To-
10: yeah. Well, I would say even just in general, bug bounties. That happens like a oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that happens all the time, that's, uh, that's why I, like, it's interesting to see the Twitter chatter where people, again, I think they just say, hey, bug bounties are just this fad that everyone's doing as a yep. way to, like, virtue signal that they give a shit about security, <laughs> and yep. um, that's, uh, I don't know, it's not that easy, based on, yep. you know, how much I see our sales team working really hard to close every deal that they close. um so it's it's oftentimes an upward uphill battle because it's not just convincing the security team that this is a good idea it's convincing marketing that this is a good idea it's convincing um the legal teams that this is a good idea and they're the ones that often like like you know lol what you're saying that you want to invite random hackers to hack us and that exactly you know that they're going to report it through some random company that you're that you want to enter in an agreement with or whatever like yeah. these are all just weird things to people that are very risk averse. Yeah exactly and even coming again
9: internally at a company when you start pushing that out and you know, something i recently went through is like okay let's let's get this this bug bounty program okay let's expand it public uh let's Maybe maybe we can throw in uh, safe harbor guys, what do you think? And it's it's, you know, obviously like very much pushing my luck. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of that exists in so many of the other companies that are in this area? Yeah,
1: right that, that was a big question that I, I wanted to kinda of save for the end. Um and actually we are almost at the end. I didn't even realize wow it's eleven twenty. timing. <laughs> yeah. Uh like so let's like just putting everything we we've set aside of the individual pieces of this, I guess. What would you say is a, the uh a good way for people who are, say, working at a company like what MG is describing, or smaller companies that you know might not really even understand the value of a bug bounty program. How do you ask them? Like, you know, how do you bring that up to the you know top brass about um, starting a bug bounty program or potentially trying to do that? Like, do you have resources for? companies to kind of go through and say here's the value of this that maybe somebody would be able to use to present to their company if they think that they need a bug bounty program
10: yeah i mean uh like you know bugcrowd.com has a ton of uh like white papers and you know one pagers and all kinds of stuff around or even just you know web pages that list out resource uh results that we compare so it, i guess it's more around what i would think about is what what are you trying to accomplish with it um because there's different ways to approach it there's um one of the kind of hot button ways on twitter or uh to uh, sorry one of the hot button subjects around twitter with this is um replacing penetration tests right so there are people that are replacing or supplementing their penetration testing and that's that's a market that is easier for us to enter simply because most companies are required to do pen tests for some sort of um you know regulations or you know some sort of certifications or whatever they have to to do pen tests on some sort of regular schedule so you could you could argue that hey we should do this in addition to those penetration tests because um, crowdsource security or bug bounties—they get a ton of results. They typically get more, more results and higher severity issues than um, most penetration tests. And you could use those penetration testers to work on other things. And Casey can talk about this at length and much more in depth than I can. But essentially, I, what I, what the I want to get out on that conversation is, bug bounties are great for a lot of things, but they can't do. Some other things, and that's where penetration testers are really great at, too, right? like on-site engagements, or working in- depth internally with your development teams to increase their or just be better at security culture and, and, mm-hmm. and just kind of working in depth where you uh, you don't need them every day like pen testing your stuff, where you yes. could have you could out basically outsource a lot of that to crowdsourced security because I't what I don't want. I think a lot of people have a knee-jerk reaction in the security community because they're afraid that, you know, the bug bounty researchers are going to come and take our gerbs, and like we're not here to take our ger- like take your jobs, you know. We're not. Yeah. We're not, that's not the goal. It's not. It's not like um, it's not a market like um, an Uber or like taxi cabs where there's like a finite amount of demand that is being satiated uh, to a certain extent. Um, there's there's like more work to go around in security there's actually like a uh, a dearth of talent there we need like 500,000 people in the united states or something like that there's <laughs> in terms of open security positions right so there's more work to, than than we have to go around that we can possibly f- fill so yeah. in my maybe this is too um you know, optimistic or naive of me, but what I would, I would like to see is more like bug bounties are going to have their niche and penetration testing are going to have their own niche as well. Um, and what I would do to the original question is I would try to, I would think about what do I want the bug bounty to do within my security like uh, process or program overall and i would think so is it like we want someone to bang on these few products and we think bug bounty researchers would be really great at that and again you could talk about resource or um, results because they do bug bounty researchers do find high severity things um quite often so i would talk about that or it could be other um there might be some other angles to it too but i would kind of i would try to tailor it to what you think is your boss going to be most interested in because that's what i've learned as a i'm 30 years old i've been working in technology for the last 10 years and i've learned that you know each boss cares about things in and <laughs> each boss is different right so you're yeah. gonna have to kind of tailor it to what that company actually gives a shit about and sometimes bosses really care about things that are kind of dumb and you have to kind of tailor it to them and sometimes they care about this other thing and you have to kind of tailor it to that so yeah um, that's yep. my kind of wishy washy answer i Casey probably is going to have a much more well thought out and you know <laughs> great answer than that but from no. the guy who mostly works with hackers that's kind of my take but i don't i don't necessarily have to sell customers that much i'm more on the on the researcher side yeah
3: well that's
1: awesome though i mean it's it's good perspective from from all from both sides or whoever we get on here um but yeah, I mean, they, thanks very much for for coming and joining us, uh, especially because we can kind of were last second about some of this stuff. But I mean, definitely, like, uh, we'd love to have you have you guys come back, you know, anytime and and discuss this kind of stuff because we get a lot of questions, especially in this Discord, about uh, bug bounties and and you know, people asking like, how I found this bug, how do I how do I verify it, how do I report it, like can you guys help me? Like, you know, we, we work with people to say, Hey, like here's how you can communicate it. Here's how you can like, you know, not be, you know, extorting people or yeah. how to not, uh, also overblow some like, you know, uh, local XSS or something, you know, like, um, yeah. so yeah.
5: Yeah. This is really good. Like some of the, some of the questions uh, I've had to hold off on in case we get Casey coming on again, because um, Casey has like five, 10 years of pen testing experience before he started bug crowd. So he's, he's been on, all sides of this equation, personally. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was. I think it's been really good. I've got a bunch of questions about what do you do with scope creep and out of scope and client side and red TV sort of stuff. But I'll I'll leave that for Casey.
10: Yeah, it'll be ongoing question. Yeah, he'll be great for that on uh, Sunday. I believe is is when he'll be on. And yeah, I'm happy to. I guess you had a couple things that you wanted to cover that I noticed in the notes that I don't think we really covered, and so I'll try to cover them really quickly because one of the main ones that you talked about was um, how do I get people to basically it was like how do I get people to give a shit about the bug that I just reported yeah. <laughs> or how do I communicate impact and, yeah. and uh, for me what I think about is I try to put myself in that person or that company's shoes and you're basically you, your job is to explain to that person why they should actually give a shit about this email that you just sent and you're not you're not going to do that by saying this is a really big deal and you need to pay me a bunch of money and if you don't i'm going to publish it on my medium blog post that has two readers like that's not a compelling you know conversation and it's immediately going to put them on the defense and just be like what the hell is this rando doing you know it's it's just not a great way to start a relationship yeah where for me what i would do is I would say, hey, this is what I found, and really try to explain the impact and really think through how this could be weaponized or used. right? So yeah. earlier, you, someone we were talking about um, there's a big difference between uh, an XSS or a bug in um, a sh- shopping website than uh, a bug uh, in a game like Fortnite, where you could get a bunch of items free, and it would totally fuck up their economy like yeah. those are big differences and so you have to explain that as a as a researcher as a hacker try to put yourself in the shoes of the recipient of this bug and explain to them why they should care that's your job you need to sell the bug essentially because if they don't fully understand it that's honestly it might feel like that's their failure because they're dumb or whatever but it's kind of a you need to try to sell it to them because if if you don't do a good job on that then they're going to walk away, and you're not going to get as much money or whatever that you thought you should have gotten. So yeah. I would tr- try to go in it to very calmly and respectfully explain what you think is the situation.
7: Would, would you say that um, sometimes, you know, like screenshots with those giant red arrows and circles <laughs> are probably a good thing to include?
10: Yeah, proof of concepts are a big one. Um, but, I, but
7: I mean, like, without handing out, like, straight up pie. Yeah, if you do that, then you have no leverage at all, right? Like, yeah, you be worried about that leverage.
10: Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Like, what I often do, because um, sometimes I'll have a researcher reach out to me and say, "Hey, I found this thing in this company, and maybe that company is running." I know that they have a private bug bounty, and I can't just invite that person to the private bug bounty or whatever. That's not how our system works because we don't want. Essentially, we don't want people to find out that there's a private bounty and then just emailing us to like beg to get invited to it. <laughs> you know we don't want to get hacked like like social engineered that way. So what typically, what I do is I ask that researcher to email me and explain to me in a high level what they found and like the impact of it, not to say exactly what they found, but just be like, "Hey, I found this thing on this page, and I think this could is a big deal because of x. And that at least, I think, helps get the point across, and then you can open up that. Dialogue of like, okay, cool. Can you send me a proof of concept or something? But uh, yeah, I mean Make your best judgment and in terms of what you think is a great way to make a compelling case without Giving tipping your hand one way or the other You know not tipping your hand too much so that they can figure out what the bug was so that they can go patch it You know before you give them too much information or whatever Um, I would try try your best and in terms of people getting started in bug bounties just keep going, keep um, trying to learn as much as you can. Don't give up. Um, try to network with other researchers. Follow people on Twitter. Tons of the fucks folks, uh, sorry, tons of folks, <laughs> tons of folks are on Twitter as well. Um, but tons of folks are on Twitter, and you can find them on Twitter and follow people there and re- read their blogs and read stuff on Netsec on Reddit. Um, you know, follow, uh, watch uh, presentations on YouTube. Um, Bug Crowd has run conferences called Level Up um twice now, where oh, we yeah. put all the information up for free on on YouTube. So those are great ways to get started. And I guess like uh the path to success isn't long. I've seen researchers go from zero to making meaningful amounts of money in the span of a year or a year and a half or two years. You know, and while Sitting at day zero, it might seem like a year is a long way away. But for me, it's really cool to see researchers go from, I'm a total noob to like, hey, I just had my first $3,000 bug. You know, yeah. I don't know about you, but like $3,000 to me, if that just showed up on my PayPal account right now, that would be pretty fucking cool. And so to go from like zero to getting $3,000 in your pay account, PayPal account for one bug, that's pretty awesome. And to see people do that in the span of a year, year and a half is, is awesome. And um, that's possible with um, you know a lot of focus and hard work and and don't uh, keep pushing yourself to find those higher severity bugs. Don't just settle with you know you found you found what you think is an easy path to victory, which is just finding those low severity bugs and just you know spray and pray basically trying to find as many as possible. It's actually going to be probably a more efficient use of your time if you try to find something that's a little bit higher severity. And you can you don't don't need to find as many of them, and they're gonna pay a little bit more. They're gonna pay in some cases a lot more. You know, maybe four x. You went from finding a bunch of one hundred dollar bugs to finding five hundred dollar bugs. You know, that's that's actually a good
7: point. That's a good point as well. Like those are low hanging fruit bugs. Maybe it's a shitty XSS, but like I always see those as like the potential foothold to the RCA. You know what I mean?
10: Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
5: so, it's indicative of, um, like, if you're making fundamental input validation mistakes on, like, a search form on the front page of your website, there's probably more serious
4: bugs to find. Right? Exactly. It's like one cockroach. Exactly, uh, yeah. You could but, find more bugs through one you already have as well.
10: Exactly. Training uh, is exactly. a big thing,
5: too. There certainly are people that make, like, a full-time living out of bug bounties by, sh- by sheer volume. Like, they do find Twenty thousand dollar bugs now and then, but it's the the one hundred, five hundred dollar bugs they find. You
10: know, exactly. Yeah, there. I mean, there are quite prolific researchers that make their money off of you know those P three P four bugs that are going to be paying in the mid hundreds. You know, but they just find a ton of them and they make a lot of money. They're not, you know, the people that are make. They're not finding the two and five and ten thousand dollar bugs. Uh, necessarily, but they still can make a decent amount of money but yeah there's there's a lot of money to be made and what 's cool is the 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 industry is growing um, as more and more companies get become on board so right now we 're just kind of figuring out that supply and demand and we're trying to grow the supply of um, of companies essentially or de- demand is a better way to put it we're trying to grow the demand of companies so that we can meet the The supply of researchers and help researchers um make a meaningful income out there which is happening more and more
5: the the cool things about bug bounties is you could learn um one particular specialty like you just learn one bug class or even one actual vulnerability and um and just apply it across all of the different bug bounties that are available
10: (laughs) yeah um, that's totally a thing that happens yeah
5: i mean so you could that could be a different skill set like you could be good at scaling something rather than, than like, you, you're, you're better at getting coverage laterally rather than going deep on one particular. So
10: exactly. Kind of- that's what, like, um, there's some researchers that do that. I mean, um, you, some of you guys may know Mr. Zeri. He's a really good um, mobile researcher. And um, what he does sometimes is he just sets up scanners for certain types of mobile vulnerabilities. And one of the cool things that he does is when he finds those, uh, he uses that money and donates it to charity, because in his mind, it's like semi-free money because he wasn't actively, proactively looking for the bug manually. He yeah. set up a scanner just, to do he's it. He's just
5: automatically pulling down latest APKs from some store and just quickly scanning them.
10: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
5: that's Absolutely
1: a lot of guys that do that. Yeah, well, um, thanks very much, Sam, for coming on and talking. Um, we'd love to have you come back anytime. Um, chat about yeah. stuff. Even if you're just- hanging out in discord and want to pop into
10: chat we're always here um yeah thank you for your time everyone
1: yeah absolutely um so how can people contact you if they want to
10: sure um so you can find bugcrowd at bugcrowd.com that's b-u-g-c-r-o-w-d.com and um we're that on twitter as well at bugcrowd you can if you want to reach out to me ask me questions or whatever um, you can find me on twitter at at sam houston that's s-a-m-h-o-u-s-t-o-n and uh, my direct messages are open on twitter as well um so you can dm me there or you can email me at sam at bugcrowd.com
4: and follow it on twitter
10: yeah yeah you yeah. follow me and uh, <laughs> hang out and uh, yeah i really appreciate everyone's time I, this has been my world for the last like so i'm kind of obsessed with bug bounty so it's Cool to hang out with people and not, and they don't get annoyed with me <laughs> for talking about those for an hour. Uh,
1: no, we, we could talk about this for a very long time. I feel so. I'm glad that yeah. we have like two, two episodes to kind of deep dive into it. So, um, awesome. So yeah, we'll see everybody on a Sunday. We are gonna be talking to Casey Ellis and hopefully Nathy and some other researchers about oh, cool. their methodologies and, uh, you know, how they do their thing and why they do it. Um, so yeah, um, we'll see everybody on Sunday. Uh, so, we'll catch you later. Also, uh, retweet our tweet
3: to uh, the Dark Web movie that we just posted, please. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.